You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 431 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, and for the first time in a while, I have two guests at the same time, and they happen to have the same last name. Glenn Willis and Greg Willis. What's up, guys? I, I guess I'll have to direct traffic so you guys don't jump all over each other. What's, what's going on? I'm good. Um, you know, Greg's still coaching and super busy with that, so lucky we can catch him on, on a weeknight and, and stuff. But it's, uh, thanks for having us on. I'm doing great. Greg, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. You had to catch me out of town on a business trip to not be in the gym and be available. So it's good to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, no, that worked out uh, very, very well. I mean, you guys, I'm going to let you uh, pl- sort of pub your own podcast venture at some point as well. But I appreciate you guys taking some time on this fine Thursday. Uh, plenty to get to. I was, we were talking a little bit offline about how we talked about all, all this stuff a million times almost, but a, a lot of it's been offline. So let's let's take it offline. I wanted to ask you guys about... Um, sort of the guys who have already been here. We spent a ton of time on the rookies and all the guys who were new, but I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on two guys in particular, and that's Kent Bazemore and Dwayne Dedman, guys who we don't talk about all the time uh, recently. I guess we'll start um, with Glenn. What do you what do you make of these guys? I think I, I've got I've gotten some flack recently for saying Bazemore was the best player on the team last year. I think people have pushed back on that. He's not the flashiest guy in the world, but you know, sort of the solid two way guy. And Dedman was also you know I thought very good last year as well. So what do you make of those guys coming back as sort of like the established veterans? I think having some veterans always help, but especially if they're hardworking veterans and team-minded veterans. And, you know, we I think we know more about Bazemore at this point just because he's been around longer. We've seen him go from a kind of a minimum contract to a pretty um, you know, big contract, and, and the work ethic didn't uh, veer off at all. He's continued to improve his game. And so, you know, it's not hard to respect that, and I think he just seems like a – a great guy to have around the young guys. And then, and like I said, Dedman, we don't know as much about it because that he became a perimeter shooter last year. It seems like uh, there's almost no one that that coaching staff couldn't help become a better shooter. Um, it's just one year and we'll see if, you know, the coaching infrastructure, if you will, is there to help him continue kind of growing that part of his game this year. Um, he seems like a guy that could help other teams, but the league is so, kind of stuck at the position he plays in terms of there really being any opportunity for movement. But, um, you know, I, I you're right. A lot of fans might be like, well, what's the point of having these guys around? But, um, you know, I think they're both, you know, solid, good guys to have around young guys to kind of um, demonstrate and, and model for them what it looks like to be professional, what it looks like to put in the work, what it looks like to put the team ahead of yourself. Um, and so I'm, they, I'm frankly glad they're around. Don't mind if they get moved you know, when it's appropriate, but there should, I don't, in my mind, I don't know why any fans would not be happy that, that they're around. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. And now I guess I can uh, piggyback on that, Brad. Uh, you know, we all love Bayes. Bayes is the consummate professional. He's the guy that whether you win 60 games or 20, he's going to show up with a smile on his face. He's going to put in the same effort. And I think that's a terrific influence to have around young players, especially, when you're rebuilding and you're the bottom, you know, five teams in the league in terms of wins and, you know, the NBA game is such a grind having a leader who uh, not only sets the tone for work ethic, but also just for, you know, perspective and attitude and disposition. I think it's really important to have. Uh, I think obviously he could be an asset to a winning team. I think we all feel that's the case and his contract probably gets in the way of that a little bit, but as his contract winds down, uh, having one year left on his contract each year probably opens the door a little bit more for him to be traded. As for Deadman, I think his perimeter shooting really overshadowed everything else about his game last year, good or bad. Uh, you know, there's two things I'll say. Is one is the Hawks were a poor defensive rebounding team across the season, regardless of who was on the floor. So even Deadman wasn't able to move the needle there. I mean, he's he's not really a you know starting 35 minute a night center in the NBA. Never has been, but uh, you know. I think one thing he could do a little bit better this year is help the Hawks be a better defensive rebounding team, not give up so many second chances. And the second thing was defensively, uh, the team struggled when anyone was on the floor, including Deadman. And I think we expected a little bit more of a defensive presence from Deadman. But 
in the NBA, everything defensively starts with the point guard putting pressure on the ball. So I guess my takeaway is not to say Deadman was a disappointing defender. What I would say is, is uh, I think last season proved he's not a mistake eraser type center like other you know elite defensive centers are. They they can erase mistakes by other players by being able to cover in space and get to the rim of block shots. Deadman, decent shot blocker, decent uh, um, assignment type defensive player. But he's not the kind of guy who's going to erase mistakes when your point guard can't or won't stop uh, the ball at the point of attack. I think those are the things we learned about Deadman last year. And it's interesting to see with a different coach and with different players on the floor around him this year, whether he's the same type of player or whether we see a little bit better effort or results on the defensive glass and uh, as a rim protector. Yeah, I think he, he might be a guy, and I, I, I generally agree. I think I was we were all kind of envisioning him as a defense-first kind of, um, you know, solid-ish offensive player, maybe, but uh, more of a defense-first guy And that, you know, the jump shooting kind of came in and uh, was a huge factor and something that was obviously good to see from Deadman. but I do think that he has, he's shown uh, a higher level defensively in the past than he displayed for most of last season. As you kind of mentioned, you know, it wasn't just him. There were a lot of defensive issues, whether it be, you know, the point guard spot with Dennis or, uh, you know, you know Torian Prince wasn't great defensively last year. They didn't have all these great small ball lamps to play defense with uh, switching lineups, all that fun stuff. But uh, Deadman, it'll be interesting to see what how he fares, especially this year. I think you, he kind of enters as a, you know, fully entrenched starter. And with him and Collins playing together, I think a lot, probably more this year. That will probably help to aid um, in some of that, especially rebounding-wise. I think, you know, Collins, for all of the uh, time that I thought he was going to be a primary center coming in, he wasn't able to rebound at that kind of level when he was the only guy. But if you if you pair those two guys together, the Hawks actually might be pretty solid on the glass for the first time in a while because they have they have real size now at center and power forward. And if you throw in Torian Prince as a small forward, that's pretty good size in, t- in today's NBA, which should help to uh, mask some of those issues, I think. Yeah, it's the hardest thing for me to assess with Devman is is what the league really thinks of him, you know, because he's on a bad Orlando team. Uh, got a modest contract with San Antonio, uh, kind of was in and out, you know, there. I mean, there was a stretch of time when they were really banged up at the center position and Pop still wouldn't trust him in important games. And so in terms of kind of assessing his trade value, like, well, okay, if you're, if you're using the really simple checklist, it's like he's not a bad defender and he can knock down perimeter shots. So, you know, on the surface or on paper, you think he's a guy who might be able to play in the postseason, like play quote off the floor in certain matchups. But we really haven't seen him um, handle like real responsibilities on a real team just trying to do something serious. And until we do that, I, I don't know if the league thinks that he's a guy that could be trusted with that kind of spot in the rotation on a good team that's trying to accomplish something real or not. I'm, I'm kind of lost on. Uh, in terms of what the league evaluation is have there. Yeah, Greg, do you feel the same way? I think it's been interesting for me. I, I know I talked about this with Jeff a lot. Uh, I think those of us who watched Devin a lot last year for a full season, probably a little bit higher on him. But the league, I mean, he opted in, which means I think he was a little bit worried about his market. And part of that was just the market was so dead for centers. But is that a guy who, you know, it's tough to value him because I think if you ask – Around people don't really like, you know they they probably think he's just, just a solid big man but you know making seven million I think he's kind of a bargain frankly at seven million dollars especially on an expiring contract maybe the league doesn't see it that way. Well, I think being uh, having a year left where he had the opt in probably made him a little less desirable as a trade candidate last season because teams that were bringing players in they they love to bring in the buyout guys you just sign them for the rest of the season then your roster spot and your salary cap is not taken up for the next year but since he's uh, on his second year of that contract he's probably will be more desirable um you know i think also if they're if they're looking at tape and looking at metrics and numbers and advanced you know statistics on the defensive end i mean i think teams may need to keep in mind the, the players he spent the most time on the floor with last year were Dennis Schroeder and Tarion Prince, and both of them had plenty of challenges defending. And so when he's out there playing with defensively challenged players, like I said, he's not the mistake eraser type center. Uh, but I think if he's on the floor with, uh, uh, you know, league average defenders are better, he's a guy who can take care of assignments, give help, rotate, communicate, and uh, do things, uh, may probably just be a better fit on a stronger team than a guy who's going to clean up mistakes. So, yeah, I think this season, last year was contract, uh, probably a little bit more desirable uh, for the other teams, though. 
Yeah, I think Devin and Bazemore are obviously not similar players, but sort of similar in that way in that you might think they're more defensive stoppery types. I think Kent has always been a little bit overrated defensively. Um, I think he's a solid defensive player and actually has a lot of value to be able to guard ones even. But because of his size, I think he got a cut miscast, especially by, especially by Hawks fans when they paid him as this defensive stopper when he really isn't that. He's more of a solid two-way guy, and I, I really like Bazemore. But he's not going to just take you know he's not going to just take you away defensively. And the same thing goes for Deadman. I think he's just more of that solid two-way professional veteran option. And I think there's something to be said for that um, for both those guys. I, I just feel like we don't talk about it enough. So I wanted at least <laughs> I wanted to start there. I know it's kind of an odd place to start a podcast in late August, but I think their guys are I think they're actually kind of interesting, especially when you throw in the trade market, which I don't want to spend too much time on. But you know we had the base more rumors. I think Deadman is probably the most likely guy on the whole roster to be traded because he is an expiring contract. So there's all of that stuff, which is definitely coming. Soon. Yeah, the Deadman is more likely just because the sour matching is so right. much easier. Bazemore, I think, would get a bigger return, and you see contracts like Myers Leonard, Ryan Anderson, everybody's talking about that one, but there's enough like centers on some other contracts that will end at the same time as Bazemore's. And I think it's really just about what the market will bear for him. I think Schlick would trade him. In a heartbeat, if you could get a real asset or you know worthy assets, whatever combination is, um, if, if that could happen, like Bazemore will look his best when his defensive versatility at the one and two is something that's real for the team, and that's something the Hawks have never really been able to kind of um, put in, in terms of a fit for him. So, like for example, if I imagine him in Philadelphia, we maybe defending point guards with Ben Simmons defending uh, four, you know. And teams that have the ability to kind of cross up positionally on the different ends of the court, that's where he's going to fit. Or, you know, next to a guy like Kendall Walker, who you just don't want him defending at the point of attack all the time because he has so much offensive value. And so, I mean, it's impressive that Bazemore has improved this game. I mean, even though the team has gotten worse, you know, the last couple of years, but to see him, you know, kind of really try to be the biggest difference maker he could be, it would take a pretty specific fit where his value uh, in terms of a defensive, a virtually defensive guard would be something that would be him, something he could take advantage of, and that's never really been an opportunity for him in Atlanta. Um, So I I do think that he would show out a little more defensively than he has in Atlanta if he ended up on a team where the the position versatility was sort of an opportunity for him to demonstrate that. That's what he did you know, before he came to Atlanta, was kind of defended the one and, and allow point guards to kind of get a break, you know, and such when they need to. So, I think there's probably only a couple guys of uh, his ilk, like a, you know, real shooting guard size players that might even be better at, shoot, at defending point guard in the whole league. Like, I think about Clay Thompson. There's a couple of those guys who are like that. And I think Bays is much better defending ones than threes. He just had to kind of guard threes a lot because he was the only guy that could. I think that's something we've been saying for a long time. It's sort of an interesting transition now. We can kind of talk about a couple of guys that they added in the offseason, but you know, last year I was ranting and raving about how Torian Prince was really the only small forward on the whole roster. Everybody else that was playing the wing was really you know shooting guard size, and then they went out and added a bunch of guys um, this offseason. How much of them, uh, how, how many of them are interesting is sort of an interesting uh, question in itself, but you know, they had Justin Anderson and Daniel Hamilton and even Vince Carter uh, to go along with Kevin Hurd, who they, who they brought in as well. So it should look really interesting on the wing, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not again. I'm not sure how how much those guys are going to play, but I guess we'll start we'll start with Greg. Like, what do you make of all the new additions on the wing? Knowing that obviously one or two of these guys are going to have to be out of the rotation, but uh, they at least have some more size and some more uh, interesting skill sets to add this year. Well, I mean, the thing that jumps out at me the most is is when you look at a team that has a lot of wings, you tend to see a lot of redundancy. And when I look at these wings, I see very little redundancy. These players are all very different players. I mean, in just in size and speed, athleticism, some can shoot, some really can't shoot, and just depending on what they bring to the table. So I think you have a lot of variety. I don't know if that's a good thing, but you have a lot of different uh, types of wings in this one group here. Um, I mean, obviously, I think in that group, I mean, of the new guys, Justin Anderson's a guy who now is in an opportunity to, to play, get rotational minutes and show what he can do. Um, you know, I think he's really been wanting this and he's a guy who's worked hard, kept his head down and just been waiting for the opportunity. And now this opportunity, um, is going to be in front of him, obviously, uh, um, familiar with coach Lloyd Pierce's system and expectations. And, uh, so I think he's a guy that's really, I think 
is going to step forward and probably be able to get a good amount of minutes. The other guy's Hamilton. I mean, is he a fringe NBA player? He's been treated that way so far. I mean, in the G League, he he was a really nice, you know, versatile G League player. But you know that you know there's a lot of guys that could play in the G League that really really don't get a sniff of minutes in the NBA. To me. He's a fringy guy who's probably going to get just a quick look here or there, and he's going to have to prove what he can do um, in those spare minutes uh, to earn a few more spare minutes. But to me, he's probably a 14th or 15th guy on the roster. The other guys, I mean, Dorsey, we, we know he's somewhat explosively in flashes offensively, but really challenged on the defensive end. And then Huerta is, uh, we haven't seen him play, uh, you know, because he didn't play in summer league. So, uh, you know, if, if Coach Bud were coaching and whatever one of those team, we probably wouldn't see see him or hear from him until about January or February. So, but it was commissioned to see how quickly uh, he works himself into the rotation, even if it's uh, you know eight ten minutes a night that kind of a thing. So, for me, it's very open ended, and I think the wing rotation we see in uh, you know November could be extremely different from the wing rotation we see, let's say, in January. So the situation probably is going to evolve as the season works rolls along. Yeah, and I think I would piggyback on that. I think what, what the one word Greg didn't use, but he was kind of certainly a theme of what he was saying there, was competition. There's going to be real competition. And the diversity of skills, like Greg was mentioning across this, I think, the way that that is meaningful to me as I look at this roster as the season approaches is that, you know, Bud was very prescriptive about what he wanted. You know, he wanted a, a matchup of Corver and a Cephalosha where Corver was really the perimeter shooter and Cephalosha would just go stand in the corner. And, you know, when Bud would draw criticism about kind of maybe lacking creativity or not being able to get the offensive output that um, some other, you know, top coaches league can would be, that he's uh, was kind of over-prescriptive and, and so committed to a system that there wasn't uh, sometimes as much creativity as you'd want. And you know, it's interesting that we don't really know what to think because this is uh, Lloyd Pierce's very first job as a head coach. But it looks like you know Schlenk is valuing you know putting more a more diverse set of skills there. And, and I, I guess the hope that I have is that Pierce is going to be on the offensive end less prescriptive. He might be very prescriptive on the defensive end. He seems like to have a kind of a set of philosophies on that end that are very important to him. But it will be interesting to see kind of how the offense is um, run, especially with a young guy like Trey Young, um, kind of being a guy you want to hopefully start kind of initiating from. But I'm excited to see if there's a little bit more creativity offensively where uh, Bud was a, a coach I respect a lot and was happy when you know they hired him. But certainly at times, again, was just um, so married to a system at times it seems that, um, you know, couldn't get over the, the hump. So I'm, I'm excited to see them. I, ben, I think Bembry is the guy that I'm going to be watching the closest from the get-go just because, um, you know, that fourth-year option is not guaranteed. It seems unlikely they wouldn't pick it up. But if, if the guy can't, you know, keep himself healthy, then you don't know. But I, I think Bembry from the get-go and then, over time, you know, hey, can can Dorsey earn his time as a defender? Uh, can he do things on the offense that, um, a, apart from taking shots and knocking him down, that maybe it doesn't great? So it's going to be interesting here to watch this whole group. Um, uh, but again, I, I think the, the versatility in the competition is, is a healthy thing, uh, you know, especially heading into a season where expectations are low. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think just having a bunch of guys, uh, Bembry is a guy I've always liked, but. It's a very, very crucial point in his career right now with the fourth-year option, and uh, I agree with you on Hamilton uh, in general. I think he's probably the least guy. I mean, uh, I mean, Vince Carter is kind of an open question. I'm not really sure what he's, if, if how much they want to play him, how much he wants to play. That's kind of a weird spot because he's obviously uh, at, at an age where uh, I can't imagine he's going to be playing a ton on a rebuilding team, but he's around and they, and they signed him. So, you know, he's actually probably a better player than some of these guys, but how much they want to actually use him is another question. And then you have, of course, Kevin Herter should be the number one priority of these guys if he's uh, able to play. And um, we'll see. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lots, of, uh, lots of names and lots of different roles. I agree. It's kind of an interesting 
um, dichotomy because you have some guys like Justin Anderson who are definitely more defense first, uh, you know, maybe even play some time at the four, and then you have guys like Tyler Dorsey and you have Kevin Herter who are definitely offense-focused players uh, who are a little bit smaller and definitely more to more, more shooting guards type of guys at the, at the moment. So lots of different guys to monitor. Uh, and also, which I wanted to ask you about here, uh, I guess we'll just do this now. Um, there's also a possibility that they go really small sometimes. And with the backcourt of Trey Young and Jeremy Lin playing together, I think that's um, something that they've already talked about happening. And I'd be pretty surprised if they don't do it pretty often, at least early on, because that's why you trade for Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin is a guy who's legit 6'3", 6'4", who could play off the ball a little bit. And I think they're going to want to play those guys together some. So uh, what do you make of that potential pairing? Obviously, I want to talk, talk about Trey more than more than Lin because it, it just matters more for the Hawks' perspective. But um, what do you make of that potential pairing? And then also, I want to get, want to get your thoughts on Trey big picture because I, it's by law, contractually, I have to ask every single guest about Trey Young between now and uh, the end of time. So I have to ask about that. Uh, I guess I'll jump in here, Greg, if that's okay. Um, so it, so what the Hawks fans, if they, especially fans that only watch the Hawks, might not know about Jeremy Lin um, is that um, the year he played with Kimba Walker in, in Charlotte was really the breakout year for Kimba. And they played uh, those two guys together quite a bit. And it really benefited uh, Kemba. He was able to kind of take a handful of possessions per half and go stand in the corner and not be um, the single you know, initiator on the offensive end. And that, that helped him uh, maintain his energy and you know, throughout the game. Um, and so the fact that Lynn can, can run a decent pick and roll and can make good, de- good decisions uh, in those types of actions really benefited him. And then that season, uh, the reason the needle really moved statistically for Walker was that he was like 94th percentile in spot-up opportunities. And so Lynn, and a guy can't just stand in the corner and by himself be that good in spot opportunities. That that happens when someone knows how to get you the ball when you're spotting up. And, and Lynn was really, really effective. So one of the things I think that we all talked about having watched Trey Young and summer league was that he really is not doing anything when the ball's not in his hands. And so if coach Pierce and the coaching staff really want to start emphasizing very from the get go with Trey young, that, Hey, you know, when you don't have the ball in your hands, you guys still have to have purpose. You still have to be at a place uh, where you are, um, the defense has to pay attention to you and you're a threat. And he wasn't really doing any of that. And so I do think that, you know, for example, if, if Lynn and, Trey Young play a lot together. That's probably not great for Tyler Dorsey, but um, Trey Young is much more of a priority for this team, this organization than Tyler Dorsey. And so, if it takes playing Lynn and Dorsey together a lot to steer Trey Young's development in terms of what he's doing off the ball in playing with purpose off the ball, then that's a way bigger priority to be worried about Tyler Dorsey's development. So that's that. I, I reflect back to the year he played with Kemba and how much he helped Kemba. And then hopefully what this coaching staff is going to do to not allow Trey to kind of just be uh, lacking complete purpose when he's off the ball. But that, so that's that's the value I see in it. I know we all had different opinions about the trade when that happened, but now we're here. This is the roster. That's what I'm looking to see from that uh, in terms of value from those guys having the opportunity to play together from, from the get-go. I guess what I'll add here is is when, when you bring in Jeremy Lin – you know, it almost seems like uh, just superficially, like okay, you got forty-eight point guard minutes. You probably don't want Trey Young playing thirty, thirty-five minutes a game when he's a rookie. You probably don't want Jeremy Lin playing thirty minutes a game coming off, you know, a pretty significant injury. You split those minutes up twenty-four, twenty-four, uh, just from a bird's eye view. That kind of makes sense. But then again, when you get into basketball and you think about, you know, what makes sense basketball-wise and for Trey Young's development. You talk about playing these two players together. Then my question becomes: Well, if you're going to play these guys together, you're going to have minutes where neither of them are on the floor. <laughs> and if you're going to have minutes with neither of them on the floor, who's going to play point guard? Because there's really not another true point guard on this team. And Benbury can play some point. Uh, you know, Tyler Dorsey is a secondary ball handler, but has to me has not proven that he can play lead guard even in short stretches in the NBA. Uh, you know, Daniel Hamilton is has point guard skills, but I don't know that his ball skills and his athleticism is strong enough to play that position at the NBA level. So if they do play together for, you know, 10, 12 minutes a game or even more, I'm going to be really interested to see who's playing those guard spots 
when they're on the bench and not play, and both of them are off the floor. So uh, I'm not against playing these guys together. I'm just more fascinated to see how that's going to play out if they do play together. Yeah, I, I do think that's something. We, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because it'll be fun to see Trey and Lynn play together, especially because Trey needs to get better off the ball. We, I know you guys mentioned that. Um, but summer league, it's kind of sh- striking just to see how little he moves right now. And I think part of that's just the, you know a lot of that at least at the college level was the low he was carrying was just so crazy that. I'm sure the energy level wasn't super high off the ball. Um, at the same time, he's got to be able to do that in the NBA to reach his ceiling. So that's a spot where you want to see that. But I, the point about those guys not playing, um, neither of them playing, is a, is a good one because it all sounds perfect when you talk about a rotation and like you know they'll play this many minutes, this, they'll play this, this minutes uh, together, this this many uh, apart. But that's not how usually that's not how it usually works in the NBA. Like it might work some, sometimes like that, but uh, there'll be times where you have foul trouble, you have some weirdness there. And if you can't stagger them perfectly to where they're playing all 48 at point guard, that third spot becomes interesting because, you know, Jalen Adams is the two-way. He's the only guy who's, I think, is, I guess a point guard on the roster, but he's not going to be there all the time. And you, you mentioned the names that you mentioned, Bembry and Hamilton and Dorsey, uh, even Bazemore, who I know Bud trusted to run point more than most. Um, but none of those guys are point guards. I think I do think Hamilton, I think it was the first person I, I actually heard say this was, was Tyler Jones. It might have been on my podcast that he thought Hamilton was signed as a third point guard almost. And I think that might be true. But at the same time, I am not uh, a, a huge fan of that being a primary option. So, um, yeah, it's a good question. I was a little bit surprised, honestly. I think the day, the, the day that they announced, or I guess that word broke, as I know the Hawks haven't announced all their moves yet, but the word broke that the last two spots were going to be Vince Carter and Daniel Hamilton. I was surprised because I was expecting a third point guard somewhere along the way. Maybe that is Hamilton, but uh, that doesn't seem ideal to me. So I'll be interested to see that as well. I think uh, I mean, we, we saw last year uh, that Josh Majette came up a little bit and played uh, played point guard, and I think Joe Adams will be around at times, but there is that cap um, for two-way guys. So that limits your flexibility a little bit. So that's a spot to watch. But you know, and the big picture that matters less than uh, what you know what what Trey looks like is the most important thing. And then of course how Trey and, and Jeremy Lin look together uh, is more important than uh, you know because again this team uh, it's very difficult to talk about a team that's not necessarily trying to win every game. I know they're trying to win, but it's not the uh, the biggest picture deal right now. It's all about development and uh, Trey's development is perhaps the most important thing of the entire season. <laughs> that's kind of what happens when you have a top a top five pick that you that you just traded for. So the Spotlight will be on him. We kind of all know that, but uh, that's the number one thing, pretty much. Yeah, and for Hamilton, I, I, you know, went back and watched a good bit of uh, him in the dog, in the, these dog days. There's really not much that's going on in the NBA. <laughs> if he's useful as a point guard, it's going to be the fact that the Hawks are playing fast because he's very good in transition. He's good at pushing the ball. He's good to hit ahead, hit ahead passes. He's he's tall enough that he kind of is, uh, is able to see all the passes that are, are available to him, and then uses late to execute the passes in the half court. I don't think his handle is strong enough to handle like trapping and, you know, operating in tight quarters and stuff. So, so if he emerges as the guy that, that they trust, it's going to be because they're, they're looking to play really fast and, and really get into kind of tradition, a secondary transition in a dead half court possession. I don't think he's really good enough to run a lot of, of, of your plays there. And that might happen. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna play fast. I mean, uh, Lloyd Pierce was famously running like a 15 second shot clock in practice before summer league. You know, was, a lot of it's probably just to get them ready for the summer. But at the same time, they're gonna look to play fast. And I do think if you're gonna play Daniel Hamilton, this kind of goes for whoever, whether it be Bembry or whoever. I, I think if they're gonna go without that traditional point guard, you need to have multiple ball handlers on the floor, and that means Hamilton and Baysmore together, or Hamilton and you know Dorsey, somebody else that can handle the ball a little bit. It won't be ideal to be sure, but. Uh, they're gonna have to at least pair those guys, uh, I guess, strategically, so that there isn't just this complete uh, lack of uh, shot creation and uh, really just individual uh, being able to get get in the offense more than anything else. Because um, you know you, you can't just go out there. I know you know point guards can be overrated in that sense in today's NBA if you if you're gonna run certain things, but um, you still have to have somebody that's gonna initiate your offense, especially on a young team that isn't gonna be uh, probably the most streamlined in the world, especially early on in the season. So just something to think yeah, about. Good. Yeah, just uh, one last thing is also, you know, Lynn's an older guy, not very unlikely to be on the next good Hawks team, but it gives them a chance to kind of put different guards next to Trey and just see how it works, even when he's young. So would will Trey benefit from playing next to a kind of a more of a point guard guy? Well, Jeremy and Lynn might not be that guy three or four years from now, but they can find out how that looks and how that works. And, then, and also, like, just, you know, one more thing, like, for example, if Tyler Dorsey can't play next to Trey Young very much, 
why, why keep them around? I mean, you know, if that's not a fit, and I'm not saying they won't be, but they have this season to really explore that and, and the tourist city or free agent next year. But if, if he's just not a fit with Trey, then I don't, that's a guy I don't think you're going to want to invest in. So those are the feedback loops, I think, that with the, this roster offers, even in Trey's first year, just to see let's play next to this type of guy or play next to that type of guy. How does it work? How does it function? And what, what's the best fit? And that informs future roster decision points. So that's how I look at it. Yeah, in theory, I think having uh, having Lynn makes a ton of sense. Uh, number one, you have a veteran uh, sort of mentor backup point guard. Uh, number two, you have a guy who can you know basically function as a starting level point guard. I don't think he's a guy who's going to be a starter on, on a good on a on a good level you know top ten team. But Jeremy Lin's a top thirty point guard in the league probably when he's healthy. So having a guy like that plus uh, a guy who can also play with Trey because he has, he has the size, he can shoot a little bit. He's kind of the perfect guy you would want. Um, to have alongside Trey, at least on paper, and we'll see if it works. <laughs> Obviously, uh, we're all in this uh, filling out process together because a lot of this stuff's going to be very, very new, uh, new staff, um, new system, all that fun stuff. Uh, I wanted to ask you both about um, one more guy before we uh, sort of start wrapping up here. That's Alex Len, who I talked about a little bit when they, when they signed him, but I feel like I haven't talked about him a ton since then. I've always liked Alex Lynn. He was on my, he was on my list, uh, a, a pretty short list, I will say, of guys who I actually wanted the Hawks to pursue in free agency because he is a pretty young player and they have a little bit of control over him now. Um, I guess, Gray, we'll start with you. What did you make of the Lynn signing and uh, what kind of role is he going to play? Because obviously they have Devin and Collins, but in that third big spot seems to be his. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I mean, here's a guy who played you know several years on a team at the bottom of the league and struggled to get consistent minutes. I mean, yeah, he's kind of playing behind Tyson Chandler, but even when, you know, Dragon Bender came along, you know, it, there was a competition for minutes. Alex Lynn just never seemed to be able to entrench his, his role with that team. But he, he's a guy with potential. He's a guy with offensive skills. Hasn't really been a very good shooter outside three feet, but, you know, the potential is there that if he had some consistent minutes and if he, you know, uh, works a little, just continues working on his shot. There's a lot of potential there, but he's just one of those guys that has had three, four, five seasons to to really show his potential and just hasn't done it. Now, that being said, for having a, a big body that can come off the bench and actually does have kind of some ball skills, he's a pretty decent passer. Um, he has the potential, like I said, to be an okay jump shooter for a guy his size, even if he, even if he hasn't done it consistently. I thought it was a very low-risk, uh, economical decision to bring him in, um, even in today's NBA game where you, you know everybody just plays out small a lot. Uh, you can never have uh, you know too many big bodies, and uh, you know with, especially if Deadman is a guy who's probably uh, you know on the trade block uh, as soon as teams start hitting the markets and shopping around to see what they're going to do. Um, he's a guy that could play some more of those minutes if Deadman does get traded at some point during the season. So for me, I'm not expecting great things from him. Um, I think he still is a potential guy, but you know, potential guy hitting his stride in his sixth, what is it, sixth season maybe? If I, I'm just off the top of my head trying to remember how many seasons he's played or sixth season, but um. I'm not expecting great, great things from him, but you know, I like him as a player. He can do some things. Very low risk, very reasonable contract for me. So to me, it was a kind of a, a no-brainer, and I'm happy the Hawks pulled the trigger on that one. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was it made sense too. He's a you know even for the number of years he's played, he's still a pretty young young guy. Um, he's a guy that had, you know definitely has an NBA body and kind of NBA athleticism is is impressive kind of quickness and foot speed for a guy his size. And the thing that makes me most curious or interested about him, or maybe somewhere in between those two points, is that in, in Phoenix they never really established a player development culture that was consistent. There were so many coaching changes and so many resets and those sorts of things. And you and you see the lack of uh, development in high draft picks like Marquise Chris and. Jogging Bender and things like that. So you just wonder if getting him into a completely different and new player development environment might be um, an opportunity for him to really kind of, for the first time in his career, show what he could do. When I think back about his time in Phoenix, the, the worst look for him was when the guy like Alan Williams got you know got on that team and really quickly moved straight past him and had him in the rotation. And, and Alan Williams was not on the radar as a prospect anywhere. So. When a coaching staff, you know, goes that quickly to a guy like Williams, that says a lot about how they feel, 
uh, about about Len. But again, it's you know it's the classic kind of change of scenery, you know, type of opportunity for him. But Lloyd Pierce has a reputation of being, you know, very well respected across the league by players and coaches. The in terms of what, how he understands player development to happen. So, you know, who knows? Maybe he, he could end up being a really nice player, and he might be a guy on the Mexican Hawks team if it kind of, it kind of clicks. So, it, I, I think his agent, he must be excited to be out of that uh, situation in Phoenix and be, you know, potentially work with the coaching staff that might be able to get more out of him. Yeah, I think it's. You know, it's a good sort of talking point. Talk about just a lot of different things, but Alex Lynn is not going to ever bowl you away. I mean, he, you know, he's played five years in Phoenix. He was fine by the end. Obviously, I don't think he's ever going to live up to that draft position. I think he, you know he's a top five pick. That doesn't seem like a, the kind of guy that he is. But he's still very young. He's a talented player. He can fill a role at the NBA level. He is cheap, as you guys mentioned, and. For me, it's like you can really like an acquisition or you can really like a player without thinking that player is incredible. Like I, I often get um, pushback on some of my opinions. Like you know, people think that I'm like obsessed with guys that I that I like that are bench players, and it's like guys, I, I like what they can do. It's not that I'm thinking they're incredible. Like Mike Muscala was a good example of this. I used to think, you know, why, why do you like Mike, Mike Muscala so much? He's not that good. I'm like, I understand he's not that good. I understand. Like he's, he's a fine rotation player, um, but I like him in his role. And Alex Lenz sort of the same thing. It was a, it was a contract that made sense because he's still very young. Um, and for a team like the Hawks, that's looking for a long-term rebuild. I actually wish they had signed him with cap space because in that way they could have signed him for more than two years, but having him locked in for two years at a reasonable cost and in a different role, he's sort of a perfect, you know, second draft candidate in that Phoenix did not treat him overly well. Um, part of that could be that he's not that good, but I, I'll be interested to see how he looks elsewhere because um, he could be a guy that sort of pops elsewhere. I'm not expecting him again to be like this incredible starting level center, but if he can be kind of the guy he was last year or better, it's a pretty good contract. Yeah, and I'll say this too. Like the last three years, his minutes have gone down, but his per 36 numbers have gotten better every year. And a lot of that has to do with Phoenix really investing, you know, really in Dragon Bender, and he's a much younger player and hoping to bring him along. But uh, quietly and sort of under the radar, Lynn has shown, like, uh, he is a productive player when he's on the floor. Now, a lot of that might have been during garbage time. Some of his bigger games for Phoenix last year came in blowout losses, I think, if you went back and looked at it. But still... I mean, he is a, for a guy his size. He does have some ball skill, and he does have some potential on the offensive end that I think could click. And uh, like I said, not make him uh, you know a great player, but a, a guy who can contribute. Yeah, it's just uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I like that move, and um, they need another big. I mean, that's the other thing. Like you have to fill enough minutes, and they weren't going to be able to go into the season at least responsibly. <laughs> with uh, with John Collins, Dwayne Dedman, Amari Spellman, and Miles Plumley, it's not exactly going to get you all the way through 82 games. I think we saw that last year. I think you want. I think this Hawks team probably wants Miles Plumley to never play. Um, at the same time, you get an injury and suddenly Miles Plumley's back in your rotation. So you can, yeah. you can only have so many guys, uh, and everybody on your roster at some point usually ends up mattering. Um, so having another guy like Lynn really takes the pressure off that and gives you another guy you can sort of build with. Yeah, for sure, and. Um, similar to talk about Trey Young playing next to different types of guards, you know, we're still there's still a lot to learn about John Collins in terms of what's the optimal type of front court mate to bear next to him, and he's different from Dedman. He's different from Plumley. I agree that there's not much use in Plumley playing apart from the fact that you don't if there are injuries there, you don't want Collins to be forced to guard the other team's biggest, strongest player in, in you know, second year, twenty age, twenty one season. There's just some injury risk there, but again, you could kind of play with the fit around Collins and just to kind of test some things out. And Lynn does offer something quite different than Deadman. And you, you can see, hey, how does he look next to a Deadman? How does he look next to a Lynn? How does he look at maybe at minutes next to Prince at the four and he's at the five? So they can play and kind of get some feedback on what's the best fit long-term to kind of put next to Collins. And I think they'll, they have a, a good mix of bigs here just to get some feedback on that and support it, I think. In, at various points in Len's career, he's been a very, very good shot blocker and a very great rebounder. So, as we talked about Deadman earlier, got to kind of go full circle, as you said there. Like, it's there are different kind of guys. And I, I know there was some buzz, I think, actually from Lynn in his uh, uh, his welcome interview in Atlanta. He mentioned being able to spe- space the floor a little bit. I'll, ble- I'll, ble- I'll believe that when I see it. But the Hawks did have some success last year with Dwayne Deadman out of nowhere. So, maybe they do that same thing with Alex Len. That Only time will tell on that one. Um, all right. Well, uh, before I let you guys get out of here, and I appreciate all the time, I have to ask you uh, two two rather quick questions. 
both of which you've answered for me in a different format over at PeachtreeHoops.com, which I, uh, I would encourage everybody to go read all of us and all of our work over there. But um, number one is who is the best player on this team this season only, not for the future. And number two is uh, projected record. I know it's unfair in late August to ask about projected record, and I hate giving my own, but I have to ask you because that's just what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks with every guest. So those two questions, you guys can fight it out to see who goes first. Go ahead, I, 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 yeah, you beat me to it. <laughs> you beat me to it. Uh, we're identical twins, if you don't know, so we've been playing this game for many years. <laughs> um, so for me, John Collins is the best player in this team heading into this season. I think the playmaking and the shot-making we saw in Summer League, I know that was Summer League, but the shooting form looks so much improved. The confidence in his shot looks – he has in his shot looks real. Um, his confidence in attacking with the basketball in his hands – uh, looked real as well. Now, the thing that will really test him this year is that he'll be a primary focus of the opposing team's defense. And then that, that'll certainly, you know, be the test of how much usage and how much playmaking they can um, allow him to, to own. Um, so, you know, I'm excited to see what that looks like in the NBA, NBA context, if they could be trusted to do that. There's really no reason to not let him kind of um, test the limits of his offensive playmaking in the way that kind of Prince got to do the last 20 games or so of last year. And so, you know, I think what we saw in Vegas is going to tra- is most, it was more likely to translate than not. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, for Kid Bazemore. I just think that I expect Collins to take a pretty big leap forward and just have more impact um, game to game than a guy like uh, Bazemore, who's a, a really good, solid player, but doesn't. Uh, you know, the impact's not always there, more of a supporting kind of player. And then on record, oddly, last season, I was the uh, the guy at Peace Street Hoops who projected the most wins for them and uh, took some criticism for it. And I just thought Shalek could gave Bud too many good veterans to start the season. You know, uh, had they played the whole season with Ilya Sova and Babbitt, et cetera, et cetera, um, it probably would have got closer to the 32 when Mark I had the map, but um, I just thought there were too many veterans to start the season. This year, I see the opposite. I just don't see the defensive makeup. Now, I have to admit, I have no idea like how what magical <laughs> Floyd Pierce might be as a defensive coach. We've never really seen it, you know. Um, but I have them at 20 and 62. Um, I still think they're going to be a fun team to watch. I still think they're going to be fun moments. Uh, during the season, but I just can't see this roster being anything other than like a, a bottom five defense. But if I'm wrong, I'll be happy to be wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, I also I went with um, John Collins in terms of the best player this year. I mean, Bazemore is their most polished player, but I still think Collins is their best player. When you know when when teams are reviewing scouting reports and developing game plans for how they're going to approach defending the Hawks, I think that the opponents are going to talk more about how are we going to defend John Collins, and there's probably not going to be a lot of conversation about how do we stop Camp Bazemore, even though he's, he's a good player. He's just he's a, he's a nice, complimentary player that can do a lot of things well. I think John Collins is going to be the guy that you know, opposing teams are going to be thinking about how do we, how do we, how do we defend this guy. So, um, and, you know, at the college level, he didn't get to show uh, a lot of things. He was really put, Danny Manning really put him into a sort of a, a small circle and said, these are the things we want you to do, and that's and, and nothing else. He didn't really get to show the versatility in his game. And uh, last year, we did get to see some of that in flashes, but at the same time, for the first several months of the season, I mean, Coach Bud absolutely had him on a red light from uh, the three-point line, had him on a yellow light on mid-range jumpers. And uh, as the season went more along towards the end, we got to see him get freed up a little bit and got to see a little bit of what he can do, a little bit more of the versatility of his game. And I think we're going to see a lot of that this year. Uh, again, like Glenn said, and like, you know, commented on Petrie Hoops, is, uh, is I think he's going to draw uh, a lot more attention. So I think early in the season there might be a little bit of adjustment, but he's an explosive, gifted player, and I think he's their best player coming in. As far as wins, I actually think they're going to win more games than last year. Uh, last year for me, I think uh, for Coach Bud, 
uh, you know, it was a little bit of a lame duck season, not not to at all insinuate that Bud gave less than a professional effort or in any way stretch or form. But I think Bud just didn't have his guys and the kind of guys that he would have wanted to play, which is veterans that fit, you know, his profile of what he likes to have on the floor. So just there was a little bit of disconnect between coach and roster. And I also think just Schroeder's presence last year with the team um, made that a little bit of a lame duck season as well. So I think you're free up a little bit you've got a new coach I think that coach Pierce is going to really demand that they really compete night in and night out and play hard uh, you know not not with aspirations to go out and have a winning record or something like that but from a culture standpoint I think that uh, Lloyd Pierce is going to expect a lot from his team so just from a uh, fresh start pull in the same direction roster is kind of aligning with the coach uh, you know and his approach to the game and, and just the overall culture, I'm expecting them actually to win more games this year. I had, I think, at 28, I think is what I said on Pastry Hoops. I'll, I'll say 28, which is four more than they won last year. Yeah, that wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if they won more games than last year. Uh, I'm going to go with about what they did last year. I think I, I think I said 25 wins, and I reserve I reserve the right to change that just as you guys do in the next two months. We uh, gather some more information, but yeah, it's a situation where. I think this team is actually going to be better than last year as a baseline if they keep everybody. That's that that if they that, that includes Kent Bazemore for a full season, uh, Devin for a full season, Alex Lynn, Jeremy Lynn. If they hold on to all these guys, this I think this team's actually a little bit better than last year. Uh, we'll see if that happens, and that makes it tough to actually you know make a prediction for a team that you expect to kind of be on, in the trade market midseason. Uh, you know, best player is is tough. I, I ended up going with John Collins as well. I've gotten some pushback for the Bazemore thing I mentioned that earlier about him being the best player last year. It wasn't a situation where I think, you know, Kip Bazemore is some kind of star-level player, but it was kind of by default. Like, there were guys – he was the guy who had the least weaknesses last year, which is kind of what that what happens there. I, I, I'll be, I'm expecting either or both of Torian Prince and John Collins to pass Kent Bazemore this year. I think Collins is a little bit more likely, in my opinion, but if uh, it would not surprise me at all if either Collins or, ba- or Bazemore, uh, sorry, either Collins or Prince was the best player on this team this year. I will pick Collins because uh, I think, uh, as you guys mentioned, he showed a lot this summer. And, you know, I, I know Prince has as well that some of the clips you've been, they're going around, and he's definitely been working hard. Uh, I talked about on the most recent podcast that I did with Eric Uboa about Prince and uh, how much he is about trying to show off his game as well. I like both those guys in a big way. Um, we'll see what happens um, but you know any of those two you can't go wrong with I don't think and if by the way if Trey Young becomes the best player which I think some pe- somebody said it on our staff if that happens then that's a great that's a great great sign because usually rookies are bad and that's something I always keep saying and it's, it's not even a shot at Trey Young but if Trey Young is that good as a rookie you have a special player yeah I would say if Prince is the best player that's very good too because already last year Collins was the more consistent player of the two and Collins had played basically age 20 right and it was his first season in the league and and Prince you know several years older and the second year in the league and Collins was incredible significantly more consistent last year so for Prince for me it's the consistency is what has to happen for him to really get to the next level hope it happens but we're rooting for it but if he ends up being the best player it will be because he became much more consistent in my opinion yeah, and, I, and I'll say this, too, about Torian, and that is last year his most explosive games uh, came when he seemed to be playing with, like, a one-track mind of I've got the ball and I'm going to score. And I don't mean to insinuate that he played selfish basketball, but, uh, you know, because sometimes you're helping your team when you're taking the ball and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to score. Um, but I think that he wasn't as fluid a scorer when he played within the system and the ball was moving through three, four, five players on the offensive end. And I think for John Collins, John Collins was able to be a very productive offensive player without commanding the ball. When the ball came to him and the situation was right for him to be the shooter, the scorer, whatever, he did that. When it wasn't, he did his role. And I think that Torian, if he's able to mature his game this year, what I would like to see is him be uh, a productive and at times explosive offensive player. Uh, but not only when he's got the ball and he's got his head down and I'm going to I'm going to score one way or the other, but when it's happening more within you know the the team concept and the system where the ball's moving through multiple players' hands. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. I think it's. Go ahead. I just said I agreed. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. I uh, I think we're all kind of on the same page there. With uh, you know more consistency is a good thing for young players, and uh, we'll see if that comes. 
with Prince. Uh, all right, well, I've taken much uh, much of your time on this fine Thursday evening. I'm going to let you guys plug uh, anything you would like. Uh, I know I, I, I will say this. I, I really enjoy uh, editing and posting all of your work at Peachtree Hoops. Uh, that goes for both of you, but I know you guys have other things as well, so uh, please plug anything you'd like, your Twitter handles, all that fun stuff. Yeah, well, we're not the most active on Twitter. We're busy, busy, busy guys. I know, um, but it's, it's, it's worth following <laughs> anyway, you know? You, you gotta, <laughs> it, just, just in it, case it, you guys yeah. weigh in every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, D- during the season, I'm, I definitely produce more content. I do a lot of video breakdown and stuff like that. But our podcast is a full court press podcast. We call ourselves that because we try to cover all the teams very equally. There's another podcast out there that um, either t- team focused, like Brad, you do a great job. I'm missing an episode here on the Hawks. Um, but there's also a lot of podcasts that are kind of following the national narratives. I don't think that we're in a position to really add anything to that. It's certainly going to play us, for example, and we're going to be, we talk about that. But um, in the offseason, we cover two teams a week, kind of who they lose, who they add, et cetera, et cetera. In season, we cover four teams a week, and we say up front which four teams we're going to watch. And we try to find teams that are playing each other so that some of our listeners like to follow along and you know, do the whole league pass thing. And we'll be like last year, we talked about Charlotte as much as we did, say, Cleveland, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so a little bit different, more technical than it is entertaining. If you're looking for jokes and laughs and entertainment value or whatever, we're not the first uh, place to try. But if, if you like kind of technical breakdown and those sorts of things, um, we both lean on our coaching and background and, and those sorts of things. So um, that's that's us. Um, you can find us anywhere, pod, anywhere you find podcasts. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Press Podcast. I am at Willis underscore Glenn. And of course, please don't miss anything that hits Pete Street Hoops, even if I wrote it. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, I think Glenn covered it pretty well. Uh, he's the professional. I'm the guy that just shows up and talks uh, once a week. He does all the heavy lifting and the hard work and preparing and. Uh, and he tolerates my impossible schedule. So when I say the only time I can record is Sunday night at 11.30 p.m., he tolerates that. And it's a perfect, it's perfect time to so, record. <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, Glenn does a great job, really. It's his vision. It's his, uh, you know, he does all the hard work, and, and I just get to show up and talk and do the fun stuff. So I appreciate the opportunity there, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on you, with you here tonight, Brad, as well, for sure. Oh, yeah, and I would be remiss to not. We, we have a, a third partner that you know, um, we kind of picked up along the way, uh, Daymore, and he has his own podcast. He's, he's a uh, credentialed guy that covers the Timberwolves, you know, where I live in Minnesota. Uh, he's really good at what he does, good, good technical background as well, but he's um, the Daymore NBA show. Um, so, you know, I want to honor his contributions to the podcast as well by at least giving him a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I am a faithful downloader and listener, so I, I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, definitely check, check these guys out. Glenn and Greg do great stuff, uh, both Hawks and otherwise. So uh, follow them, do all that fun stuff. And thanks again for coming on, guys. I really appreciate it. We definitely Pleasure enjoy it, Brad. Thank you. We'll do it again very soon. And uh, as for everybody else, uh, please subscribe to the podcast, do all that fun stuff. Uh, and once something crazy happens, it will not, not, not have a new podcast until next week. But uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll be back again then.